FYI, it's Bird Week this week. <laughs> like, legitimately Bird Week? Or have you just named it Bird Week? No, legitimately. Like, civilian scientists galore are going to be looking to the skies, counting birds. Awesome. Hello and welcome to Literary Cannonball, a podcast for anyone who wants a fun and feisty conversation about books. Literary Cannonball is inspired by the work of the Stella Count and the Vita Survey, which reveal the ongoing gender imbalance in the conversations around books. Literary Cannonball is striving to correct some of that imbalance by reading and talking about books written by women from around the world. I am Kirby Fenwick and I'm joined by Neve. Student by day, writer, editor by night, and reader by nature. You're getting so good at that. It's so impressive. And Fee. Fee Murphy. I realised in all the other podcasts, I just say Fee. I'm like, (laughs) I do have two names. I'm not Madonna. (laughs) (laughs) And how are we feeling today? Okay. Good. I feel good. Caffeinated. Excellent. Let's just (laughs) jump. That's probably a worry. Let's jump straight into book chats. So to our book for episode six. What would the world look like if women had had access to and been welcomed into the scientific realm from the beginning? The mind boggles. This is not a question Australian scientist and science journalist Margaret Wertheim really attempts to answer in Pythagoras' Trousers, God Physics and the Gender Wars, but it is a question you'll be left with after reading. Published in 1997, Pythagoras' Trousers is a cultural and social history of physics from ancient Greece to the Renaissance to now, or at least now 20 years ago, that does attempt to forge links between physics and religion and the barriers this link served up to women. Sophie, you suggested that we chat about this book. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. And I stand by those reasons because I know we've been like messaging each other throughout going, hmm, bit of a challenging read. Um, This book was mentioned on a really fun podcast that I listened to called Chat 10 Looks 3 with Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb. And uh, Annabelle Crabb was mentioning how she really enjoyed reading this book because the author, Margaret Wertheim, Wertheim. Wertheim, um, she's really into crochet. And she's like, yes, she is crocheting like the Great Barrier Reef. She's crocheting the Great Barrier Reef, yeah. And just like such a gun with the needles. <laughs> <laughs> um, Actually, is, it's a hook. It's a hook. With, with a hook. A Sorry. Hook, hook by crook. <laughs> crook by hook. Um, and that's, they were just talking about crocheting, what this incredible scientist she is, and how women in science are like unearthing ways of representing complex mathematical theorems and equations via crochet and how it's like <laughs> I love that so much. rejuvenating the field and how it's like creating all these scientific breakthroughs. And they mentioned that she wrote this best-selling book in the nineties, Pythagoras's trousers and how it was the first really in-depth look at the position of uh, female scientists across the kind of the span of science in general and how they've been systematically shut out of the field and I just thought that would be a really juicy thing to talk about and I'm kind of really glad that we are talking about it I know it's a little bit dry in sections but what did you guys think of the book I actually really enjoyed it I know I was giving it a little bit of shit but that was more because I was annoyed with myself because I had to skim read like the last 50 or so pages um because i didn't just enough... like just finished reading the book <laughs> yeah today i'm a ter- like i'm not even gonna make excuses just who i am as a person um <laughs> you're a, a great person. lady you're a great person you have um, things going on um i think though with me the classics i really loved the beginning sections i got really into it and i was like yeah cool cool um it lost me a little bit towards the, the like middle endish bit where it sort of goes really deep into sort of the maths side of physics. And I'm sort of like, I'm really trying hard to keep up with this. But as she was sort of writing about the maths, I was sort of like, yeah, okay. But then as she went back into sort of religion and gender, I, it pulled me back in. That was how I was talking Yeah, I, I get that. I kind of, yeah. I guess I kind of feel the same way. Like some of that really like theory sort of dense stuff was a little bit alienating because I was like I have no idea what she's talking about 
But, you know, when she was talking about people and about these um, experiences, particularly of women in science, mm. and, you know, how, um, how really so much of the early scientific developments were really influenced and encouraged by and likely financed by um, the church. Yeah. I found that really interesting. I think that's a really interesting connection that perhaps um, – a lot of lay people might not know, mm. but yeah, a lot of that's a lot of that really um, physics-heavy stuff was a little bit um, tough to get through. But but yeah. the people, I was really really into the people, and I actually have like two pages of names of women scientists that I wrote down as I was reading this book, and I'm really interested to go and learn more about them and their stories. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I felt was kind of missing. I wanted more about the women. That was one thing that I found really interesting with the structure of it because I picked it up thinking it was going to be more in-depth about women in Mm. science and specific women. Yeah. Mm. Um, But then when you actually read the book, a lot of it is like how science was founded and there was just so few women allowed into it that it's really a story about men creating science and what science looks like that – for long sections of it, I was like, not a single woman's been mentioned. This doesn't feel like a classic feminist text mm-hmm. in the essence that um, she takes quite a interesting historical look mm. at it. And then rather than placing the lens of feminism and judgment on it, she kind of lays out the facts. And then I put my feminist lens to it rather than um, yeah. creating this really like, well, this should be this and that could be that. She doesn't kind of make conclusions or assumptions until... Until the end. Until the end, where she's like, well, now that we know all of this, we can't change how we've created things in the past and thought about things in the past, but moving forward, what are the possibilities and potentials for the future of science? So I found that quite easy to engage with in the essence that um, she wasn't quite dogmatic and beating down on the past, but she was more just kind of objectively saying this was this and this was that. So it didn't feel like wading through sort of a really actually sad history of female oppression because I feel like it could have taken that tone quite easily because it's quite horrific how women have been treated by... I mean, some of them were murdered. Well, one million yeah. women were executed for witches. being witches. Yeah. Mm. That number, I stopped and I was like, that is fucking huge. And often the witch hunts aren't talked about in the scale. Absolutely of that. not. Oh, yeah. People have this idea People... of like Salem. Oh, yeah. You know, and there was like one five women. There was like five women. And that was it. And it's like, no, no, no. And that line made me so angry. And I have to say, and I did mention this to you guys earlier. Mm. As I was reading this book, there were so many moments when I was so angry. I was furious mm. about just the way women had been excluded and the way they'd been treated. You know, I mean, there were stories of um, remarkable, incredible, genius women who worked for decades for these in- scientific institutions and universities without pay. Yeah. And I just wanted to throw the book across the room. I was so furious. All this, you know, we talk about like the unpaid labor of women and how the world basically would not exist were it not for the unpaid labor of women. Yeah. Let's be honest. Oh. And I just mm. found that so infuriating, those stories of the of um of these women who I agree. Like I found oh, it yeah. I was infuriated by this, but I found it amazing how um Wertheim could write about it in a way that was clear, mm. concise, compelling. But it wasn't, um, I didn't feel her specific anger through the book, which I kind of find interesting because maybe she was kind of applying almost a scientific lens to the history of science. Yeah. Mm. So it's quite compelling storytelling, but it didn't have this rage to it where it was excluding me as a reader. It was more like I Mm. was given space to feel this anger where I was like, how can we win? How can we, not it's about winning, it's just asking for equality. Absolutely. And she makes that very clear that there are women over the hundreds of years actively trying to participate in science and actively trying to engage in it, but still being, there are ways of shutting women out of the field. Yeah. And it was interesting because I think where this book is, gains a lot of complexity 
and it was how like the middle bit which was the god and the religion and how that affected how women entered how entered the um, scientific sphere or didn't Mm. and how like I think it was really interesting how she sort of kept coming back to the point where it was science has always been affected by culture it's not a purely objective pursuit of no way Um, Mm. and how it's always that's always fed into each other because I think that's sort of a real myth about science and how people view science because they think okay well it's science and facts and maths and whatever therefore you know it's truth and that's how it's a very masculine sort of objective ideal whereas where like the reality is that those facts and those figures have always had to be interpreted by people by people you know and who are not objective exactly and people there have always been instances where they've taken the facts and thought about them in a way that has sort of um complemented the dogma of the time Mm. And it's really, like, it goes into sort of Newton and how, like, his sort of, how he sort of worked with his own faith to sort of engage science with the church or as opposed to sort of Galileo, he was like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was really interesting, you know, um, that idea that some of the um, theories or, or, or ideas that various predominantly men put up were sort of pushed back by the church saying, no, 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 we can't have that. You know, like, oh, no, 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 no. Mm. no. And so the, they had to work, like these scientists had to work within this, within these boundaries oh, and for many, in many respects. Beautiful, beautiful irony of the fact that mechanism came from like a scientist wanting to try and work around the church and so that it could like mechanism making having that ideal set um so it can leave room for supernatural events as as opposed to how it's viewed now as is like you know it completely atheist like really sort of hardcore like scientific dogma it's really funny well, something she says in the book too which i find which i thought was really interesting um, towards the end when she says that for so long because um, I know this book focuses on physics and we're sort of expanding it out to science but for so long because mm-hmm. um, you know science slash physics has has had that um, sort of ethical and mor- moral framework of the church mm-hmm. and now there's that distinction between science and religion science no longer has that inbuilt ethical and moral framework and so we need to build a secular one yeah i found that really really interesting because i'd never thought much about the link between religion and science Mm. it just had never kind of crossed my mind oh definitely and i think that goes back again to sort of that idea of oh yeah well you know science is inherently objective therefore it's it's outside of ethics and so I think the criticism here is that, no, it, it needs to have an ethics like any other sort of science branch. I mean, what makes it special? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we should clarify that um, Wortham does say that biology and the life sciences do have like a strong ethical code yeah. under, mainly because of the application is in medicine and it's applied directly to people with physical outcomes and it has to go through a board of ethics mm. and everything has to be approved. Whereas with physics, for so long it was more a phil- philosophical concept mm. with no actual um, applications until yeah. they invented electricity and all the rest of it that that science got real and it got real quickly but to the point where nobody knew how to how to frame questions, what questions should we be asking of physics, how should we apply this knowledge of physics to the realm of the world. And I find that all incredibly interesting of who the question askers were Mm. and who was allowed into university and tertiary education. And I found that so fascinating learning about how schooling systems were set up and things like that around the world. Yeah, And it shocked me like, as you were saying, Kirby, how the church funded so many things. They funded Oxford and Cambridge to the point where those universities replicated the structures of, of the, the church. church. Yeah. 
and the the lecturers and fellows had to be celibate they just were essentially a priesthood of education mm. and the uni fellows of Ox- Oxford and Cambridge were not allowed to marry until 1882 which seems so shockingly recent mm. like a lot of this yeah. is just yeah how because I certainly didn't know a lot of stuff about math oh, no and science and I learned I was I've been boring people by going, oh my God, did you know Pythagoras actually was a cult <laughs> and a secret cult of that? And they basically assigned like kind of, it was like the horoscope of numbers. And it's just like such a romp of like, how the fuck did we get to where we are in the world from all these <laughs> from all that yeah. wacky belief systems of like Pythagoras saying you must eat this and do this and we have to do this on the full moon and then maybe if this number means that and but it's just it's interesting though how she takes those philosophical through lines though as like God is the mathematician to like Py- so Pythagoras all the way to Stephen Hawking as you know sort of the like the theory of everything and like you know, seeing um, God as sort of, yeah, having, what is it, the God, the eye of the God or something? Mind. Mind. Yeah, mind of the God, thank you. Sort of that that sort of through line and how that's ducked and weaved throughout time. Um, though going back to the institutions and the education, I thought it was really great how Wertheim made the effort to, like, go into the history of, like, not just, okay, women weren't allowed into institutions, therefore women were barred but sort of going into like you know France and how women were in the salons and like would interact with men there and, and the impact they had in that respect yeah yeah exactly and how women were taught informally by fathers or and supported by husbands and sort of going into that and how sort of they tried to get in that way not just sort of that really essentialist view of like okay well women weren't in universities therefore you know obviously they were just barred entirely or like didn't have there wasn't enough interest or um there weren't women who contributed because of that i think she kind of dispels that myth doesn't yeah. she that, that that women weren't interested yeah or didn't have the aptitude yeah because she tells like she mentions like i said i've got two pages of names of yeah. women that i'm now going to go and pop into google and do some research on <laughs> like <laughs> she really dispels that myth that they weren't interested mm. you know that women weren't interested or didn't have the aptitude because they were interested oh yeah but they just came up against so many barriers but so many of them were like i don't care what barriers you put in front of me i'm just gonna keep going and i'm kind of in awe of of so many of these women that just were and just the like sheer endurance that they had mm, absolutely Many of the women um, in the later period of time, say the 1800s, if they were lucky enough to have an enlightened father who taught them things and they found someone who was kind enough to sneak them into a laboratory or something for them to act. So Mm. literal physical barriers getting through to actually then being in the institution and practicing as a scientist, having to live in poverty for decades doing mm. work without credit and contributing actively and, and work be- without credit oh, oh that burns that burns so much who, mm. who does she mention right at the end I, it's i i should have written this down um a woman who um was it the jewish I've, woman at the I've end i've totally forgotten her name the she woman instigated from China? yes she oh, instigated no, oh, yes. the um the experiments that that um allowed the discovery and she misses out on any kind of recognition for that and that just like I wanted to throw the book again I was angry again (laughs) yeah yes for podcast listeners I'm like doing like little like flailing flailing fists there was something that I wanted to read because I think it um I think it poses some really interesting questions that are worth thinking about Mm -hmm. and I think the whole book kind of poses this interesting question but she talks about she's talking about um is it Marie or Mary Curie anyway Marie Curie she's talking about her and and she's saying um if even a woman of Curie's genius and determination was almost defeated before she set foot inside a university lecture hall Mm -hmm. how insurmountable are the the barriers must have seemed to most aspiring female physicists. What of those countless of others 
Who knows what talent was squandered because women were not given equal access to education and careers? Who knows what insights and inventions were lost because more women did not participate in the great technological revolution of the 19th century? That really struck me because, um, you know, there are so many stories about things like um, the symptoms of heart attacks being different in women. Yeah. Um, there are stories about drugs not being tested on women because uh, women's hormone levels fluctuate. It's easier to just test them on men, but then we don't know how women will respond to, to these drugs. Yeah. There's so many stories like that, um, how women, women are just sort of not taken into account. But then there's also this other, like, I don't know, you could imagine an entire other dimension where women were allowed in. And their experiences and their um, their perceptions and their, their view of the world and their and who they are could contribute to the most remarkable developments in, in science and and technology in the world. And we haven't got that because we haven't let them in. Yeah. Not I mean I haven't let not that I haven't let them in, but as a society <laughs> but women have been barred. That's... Like what have we lost? What have we lost? And I think that's a key point of using a collective we because it was systematically barring women on a social scale because it wasn't socially acceptable. But I find it really interesting that you use the word story associated with women because literally they were creating stories about women. And I found this so hilarious and funny but also heartbreaking of with um, saying women don't have the aptitude because well, anatomically, they've got smaller skulls than men, so really they've got smaller brains. But when they discovered, in terms of the ratio of skull size to To body body mass, women actually have larger skulls than men when it's a ratio. So then they turn it around and go, oh, well, children also have larger heads than their body. So (laughs) obviously women are on par with children and they just can't think. So there was no fucking way of winning. You couldn't they win. Just you can't win. Spun everything around to be yeah. like, women just can't because they can't and they shouldn't and they won't and they won't ever. And it's just so dogmatic mm. that it's no wonder we're in the state that we are now because we just pass these stories on from one generation to the next. So even if you think you're being objective and empirical, you're not. The bedrock of it all comes from a really horrendous place. Oh, definitely. Because people still now will say, oh, yeah, but, you know, men and body, like, they're just different. And, you know, they're, they're like, well, um, obviously, they're, all bodies are different. But then we make assumptions and we draw conclusions about that. Those assumptions and conclusions aren't always correct not usually or based in any fact whatsoever exactly i mean they they do that study about um aptitude for maths and they Mm. tested uh, she mentions in in this book actually where i mentions it in this book they tested um male and female students at like three ages and for the first two ages i think it was like nine and 13 they were pretty much even yeah In, in fact in the in the earliest test when they were the youngest the girls were in front for mathematical aptitude. Yeah. And then it wasn't until the last test when they were like 17 or something that all of a sudden um, the boys sort of inched in front. But how much of that is about social conditioning? How much Most of that of is about girls not being given the support and encouragement from, from um, their teachers and their schools or from their family and friends? Like, it's all very well and good to say, yes, but, um, you know, by the time they're 17, boys have a much, you know, they score better. Sure, but they've had, like, a whole bunch of support and encouragement that girls haven't had. Yeah. Mm. You know what's really disturbing, actually, is that, like, growing up, I was as interested in science as I was in literature and humanities. Mm. And then that shifted. (laughs) I can actually tell you... The exact time it shifted, it was when I was starting to learn physics. Oh, and no. that's when I oh, wow. really got disengaged. <laughs> yeah, so wow. reading this was like, oh, wow, this is like, this is a thing that still happens. Because I, I didn't leave at school that, that long ago. Yeah. Because I was, re- I remember, because I went, uh, actually, I'll share a, sorry, I'm just going to do a little side note, but I Please promise do. it's relevant. Um, I went to an all-girls school and part of like the, 
you could do this um, science experience over the holidays, which is like you went to Monash University, you went around all different science departments and did some stuff. It was all, all good. We had this little class thing, and I can't remember the exact like little like thing we were meant to do, but I think it was kind of based on Pythagorean theorem, and you had like little triangles, you had to make it to a square or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in this group, and like these boys were sort of like talking with each other and like going, oh, this or this or this, da, 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 da. And I remember just like sort of looking at it and then just doing it and doing it. And then I was, and people just sort of looked at me. I'm like, oh, yeah, so sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, and, she, and then like the instructor just looked at me and she's like, stop apologizing. You're right. You just did it. Mm. Like my, the fact that my first impulse was, was to, to apologize. apologize. Like for being right. Yeah. It sort of shows how early we are conditioned socially, mm. especially in terms of mathematics and science. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I said something, I posted a picture about this book on Instagram and I said, um, you know, it's not generally something I would pick up to read. Mm. You know, if I read about science, I'm probably going to read Elizabeth Colbert. He's my favourite science writer. Or, you know, like the best Australian science writing or something like that. You know, those mm. anthologies. I'm, I'm probably not going to pick up a book like this, but... Perhaps, and and this is what I said on Instagram, is I think maybe we need to know, like, how do we change, how do we change things or make things better or um, create space for women to participate if we don't know what got us here, if we don't know the history, if we don't know what has taken place, like we need, do we not need to know before we can make any change? I agree. And I yeah. think what's really um, makes my heart really warm about this book is the fact that that's what she realized when she was writing the book, because originally this book was going to be an explanation, kind of like a, a beginner's intro to what physics is, like a really mm. easy way to explain physics because she loves physics, went to uni for five or six years studying it. And she pretty much finished that manuscript, but it, she just didn't feel comfortable with it. There was something about it. Um, she was like, hold on, but where are the women in this story? Mm. And then that's when she thought, I'm going to put that aside, rewrite it all and figure out what this is because she knew there were some religious implications. And it was only when she started doing a deep dive into finding out what that is. And from reading it, it's, sounds like there's a tremendous amount of research that she's done and massive the amount of stuff that she would have had to work to uncover because so many women are not recorded in history that that would have just been an epic hunt to just figure out who existed and when and Mm -hmm. but it's such like I think this is an important book exactly what you're saying Kirby to understand the science we need to understand where it comes from and it comes from a philosophical basis because Mm -hmm. For hundreds of years, there was no application of physics. There was no literal application of it. It didn't solve any problems. It didn't produce any goods or services. It was just a thought process. And those thoughts were guided by particular institutions and structures. And structures. And she really explains that really quite nicely in the introduction where a lot of people get afraid and put off by physics because they struggle to understand the answers of physics. And she's like, hold on. We, to understand the answers, you have to understand the questions we're asking, what the Absolutely. point of the questions are. And I was stopped and I thought, oh my God, I never actually stopped and thought, well, what are the questions of physics? What are they mm, actually trying to, to do? Yeah. What are these theorems giving us the answers to? I don't even know the questions. And I think she does a tremendous job in quite a short space in terms of a short word count of kind of, giving me an interest and a curiosity to what those questions are and how they're applied and the future of science moving forward where could it go next is anyone's guess but um this book is 20 years old it's published in 1997 do do we think much has changed like it still feels quite relevant to me yeah even though it's 20 years old do some sneaky stats now if you wanted to but like i don't feel like it would have changed tremendously 
I, mean, I think that I think the I, I think you're right. I think the barriers are st- perhaps the barriers are crumbling a little bit, but they're still there. Well, I mean, there's still like recently there's been all that stuff about women in STEM and not so much physics, but in um, uh, technology and the barriers they have to face there. So I don't and like and I I would be quite comfortable making the assertion that those barriers are, are exist everywhere. Mm. Oh, well, the barriers. So I wrote an article recently looking into mass anxiety in women and the barriers are still there to the point where the office of the Australian scientists, so the Australian government has the chief scientist kind of an office where they kind of put out reports and things of science, they literally had to release a press statement a year ago saying, Girls aren't as bad as maths as boys. This is not true. And it's like an actual document going through each myth mm. that is associated with girls not being able or innately not good at maths. And if the government, the chief scientist of Australia, literally has to put a press release out going, stop this nonsense because we're damaging society by perpetuating we've, myths. We've got problems mm. still. These myths are active in our society and we need to stop just saying men are from mars women are from venus like we just think we know how you feel about that book (laughs) i honestly feel like you know what get the matches out so this book is still relevant i think it's still relevant and Mm -hmm. it's still a worthwhile read and i i would recommend it oh yeah definitely (gasps) Yay! I know, and I felt <laughs> honestly, I like, I really did struggle at the start of this book. I was like, "Oh, fee why?" <laughs> but I, having having read it, and you know, and had this conversation, I I would recommend it. Yeah, definitely. I I think I'd recommend it as well. I. <laughs> Fee's wrapped. Oh, it's so wrapped. <laughs> There's just such rupture in your face. Um, I have a real soft spot for any any sort of project or any book that brings tries to knock down the elitism around mm. a certain subject and this is what it tries to do even though like i mean i found it sometimes a little bit difficult in terms of like when it gets really really technical but also at the same time i wanted to engage in it yeah like, i felt the spark Oof. yeah of trying to like i was wanting to try and sort of understand what's going on and then like how that linked into the culture and then the gender yeah so i think she does a really good job of that. I think it's pretty readable considering the content. I, I have to agree. I, I, I do think it's pretty readable. And, you know, like as I said, I, you know, read Elizabeth Colbert and the Best Australian Science Writing. So I'm pushing this up against quite um, very accessible science writing. But um, there were only a few moments in this mm. book where it felt really inaccessible. Um, but like you said, you push through. You just keep reading. Yeah. And it's, you know, you get to those really great bits. Exactly. And there's lots of really great bits. Mm. Oh, my so goodness. I'm, that guy it. who's like, oh, Newton was such a legend. Let's get rid of Jesus Christ and make, like, Newton <laughs> our new saviour. <laughs> the birth of our, our Christ. Yeah. And do, did they say, that, did they say uh, that they would start time again from the year he was born? 1638 yes. or something like that. I was like, Wow. Everybody loves this, like, retiring farmer folk guy. <laughs> so oh. that's three thum- three thumbs up for oh. Pythagoras' trousers. Aye. Well, two for me. So, so that's four. <laughs> four thumbs. <laughs> that's, that's pretty – that's a nice – that's, that's nice for Margaret. <laughs> Okay, so two recommendations for episode six. What have we been reading and watching and listening to that we want to share? Neve, what you got? Okay, so I have two things. My first recommendation is called Hold Me, and it's by Courtney Milan. It is a romance. Because hey. <laughs> I actually, um, full disclosure to uh, podcast listeners, I actually read a lot of romance, but That's I okay. don't recommend a lot of romance. Um, because of a lot of reasons, specific it's, types it's, of romance. It's one of the most popular popular genres in the entire world. Yeah. Um. Well. Yeah. I tend to go for a lot of like I, 
like historical. I like contemporary. I yeah, I don't know. I especially like um, romance that has LGBT themes, mm-hmm. like this one. Yeah. Yay. Okay, tell us about it. Okay, so basically, this is the second in a series. Um, the first one is called Trade Me. It's also quite good, um, but I really liked this one. Uh, basically, the premise is that. These uh, two characters, Jay and Maria, have been sort of um, messaging each other because Maria has this sort of anonymous apocalypse blog. um, Uh, Is she a prepper? No, no, she's not like a prepper, but she's basically like done some like some science uh, in her her degree and she's like trained to become an actuary, so she's quite mathematically inclined. So she sort of goes through like how apocalypse scenarios could happen so she's basically not to dharmas no well it's like the point of like the the structure of the blog is that like she's pretending to be someone from the future telling people from the past uh, oh this is how okay. all these apocalypses are going to happen and here's how you need do you to get to it. read any of the blog in the book because um, like i really want to read the blog now. <laughs> we read about the blog i don't think we read anything okay the blog which actually i kind of like because sometimes that probably might have bogged it down a little bit mm-hmm. um what was really, what I really liked is that it has um, a kind of uh, you've got mail. Oh, <laughs> um, oh sort I, of love I love that story. I love that movie. It. I love that movie because um, they they've messaged each other for like about two years, but then when they meet in real life, two years. Yeah, when they meet in real life, um, they don't realize it's them because um, of they meet through mutual connections. And I'm just gonna be f- straight up. Jay at the beginning of this book is a dick. Like okay. he's a bit of a dick. Um, this is actually so weirdly connected to um, what we've been talking about because he's a scientist. I think he actually does some stuff with physics. <laughs> um, and he's one of those like guys who sort of is like, oh yeah, I'm a feminist because I do X, Y, Z. But then because Maria is quite feminine, he makes assumptions about her. And then so they have quite um, apathetic and really like they really hate each other at the yeah right and so then the story unfolds and it's really gorgeous um part of it what i really loved is that um with courtney milan and all her books you get a lot of her characters internal sort of like struggle and it's always about them sort of having to reconcile the trauma of their past and sort of recognize how their past is affecting how the action, the action, like the actions now. Um, also, uh, part of the book where I was really, I think, was quite well handled is that um, Marie is trans, and how that was um, incorporated into the book. I thought was really well done. Um, both characters, uh, characters of color, like wow. it's just there was just so many beautiful layers. So many gorgeous. It sounds layers. really complex. And yeah, great. but yeah, great. It was. And oh, ugh. don't go onto the Goodreads comments commenters because it's like, why Maria has to be trans? Doesn't Never read the comments. Da, 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 da. Like, just fuck off. Fuck off. Is if you want to read Neve's recommendation. Yes. If you want to read more <laughs> romances about two white cis people. You could go to basically most any other I think romance. there's at least five books that you could read about <laughs> that. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's just really gorgeous. Um, also, like, if you're into, like, STEM, like, you could really enjoy that. That part of it I could I found a little bit harder to sort of engage with. But, again, I really loved the characters. And so I was just awesome. I was really happy. Sounds great. It sounds like a great summary. So bit great to see. Bit of romance. <laughs> science romance. So great to see books, um, you know, representing our community, spreading out through the different genres. Mm. I think that's really excellent. Yeah, exactly. And it was just... It's good to see yourself, you know? Yeah, exactly. And you've got, you've got some really nice... They're just so non-stereotypical as characters. They're really well fleshed out and you can really, like... I don't... I didn't feel like they were tokenized. Yeah. Um. Within the book, I felt like they were sort of fully 
embodied characters, which is really nice. Can't really ask for anything more than that as a reader, I think. The only Mm. thing I'm going to ask for more of is more romance recommendations from Neve. Because (laughs) that sounds so stellar. Oh, I loved it. It was good. Um, Okay, and my second recommendation is kind of a book, but more sort of a poet. Um, I've kind of been obsessed with Ariel Cunningham's poetry for like a few years now. Um, she came back to Australia for uh, just recently. Um, she has a, a new book that's called Black and Ropey, um, which is really gorgeous and I love. Uh, and um, previously she's um, published uh, The Tarantist Soapbox, which is also really fabulous. Um, basically, I think it's really hard for me to describe her poetry because it's sort of so much of it is her performing it, but it sort of deals with diaspora and being, um, you know, mixed race and bisexual and in those intersections of identity and culture. It's really gorgeous. I'm just going to talk about one poem in particular, which is, I think, it's, I think it's called Curls and Other Wars, but I'm not 100%. And it's basically like the metaphor of how her... Like she had in the, her early life, her father liked it when her um, her hair was straight as opposed to like very curly, and how then that sort of lent into how um, she felt compelled to perform as straight as opposed to bisexual, and so it was just oh god, the poem mm-hmm. it spoke to me on so many. Like, it was gorgeous. And, Is there a copy yeah. of it online? Maybe that we can put in the show notes. I don't know if that one, that particular because that's one of her more recent poems but other poems um you can probably find you can find her performing them online Uh, another really great poem of hers is about beat poets uh which is basically like fuck beat poets okay i'm gonna look that one up (laughs) (laughs) well we'll we'll find some we'll find some videos of her performing and pop pop them in the show notes yeah sounds great yeah she's she's really where's she from uh america okay so I think Texan, yes. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, cool Rex, so, Neve. So those are my Rex. All right, Fee. That's a that's a an amazing looking list. It it looks like a um <laughs> it's, it's a diagram. Chart. Yeah, it's like a flow chart. There's arrows and and brackets and all sorts of exciting things. So I think in arrows. I'm excited. I look forward to this every month. What do you got? I don't even know where to start, to be honest, because <laughs> this, as I was saying to you both before we started recording, it's like, well, I have one recommendation, but really this, this, they're all tied together because they're all tied together. Um, let me start with um, this one, and it's called And the Weak Suffer What They Must. And it's got a question mark. So really I should be, and the weak suffer what they must. (laughs) And it's by Giannis uh, Varakakis. And the subheader is, subtitle is Europe Austerity and the Threat to Global Stability. And it's a really fascinating book. It's all about how the euro was created and the European Union. But instead of just talking about um, the creation of it from the 90s, he goes right back to Bismarck and he talks about the German unification. So it's a really robust history of um, the economic structures of Europe. And it also Mm. goes into the impact of um, the gold standard um, and creating that post-war of how they created the economies and structures around that and um, basically the gold standard being all economies in the world were held up against gold bullion and um, up until the 70s the Americans held the gold standard where they could only buy a certain amount of gold to kind of keep everyone steady and even mm. and then Reagan was all like fuck that we're not doing that anymore <laughs> and then that kind of led to a lot of disarray globally and the mm. swift financialization of America which kind of leads me to two other books because I find this whole area of global economics endlessly fascinating because <laughs> I, I'm sure you really, I don't really think Neve does. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Janice, I've, I saw him on, um, 
Q&A or something, and he was really... Did he, he was, come to the Writers' Festival last year as well? Yeah. He's been at the Wheeler yeah. Centre a good few times. Yeah, okay. He's, he's a great speaker. Constantly in yeah. Australia. He's such a great speaker. If you ever get a chance to see Yana speak, highly recommend, because he contextualised finance in through... Um, he really puts the social and socioeconomic, and it makes it a really fascinating read because he doesn't deny that history and humans exist. It's not just money. And I just, <laughs> I found that really interesting. That's why I really get on board with reading about economics because I think it structures that we need to understand to create change and good in the world mm. and we can't ignore that we all use money. Yeah. Um, basically, that kind of leads me into a, a writer that I truly love. He is a better storyteller than Giannis. Giannis, I think, is better in person than in print. And it's Michael L. Lewis. Who he wrote the big short, which the film was made out of the book. And mm. I have to say, read the book. The film is like a half baked job of an excellent, excellent book about. Well, that's pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, like I got confused in the movie because I was like, wait, I've read the book and I understand the book, but what the fuck is this movie talking about? <laughs> so confusing. There was like celebrity cameos in it for no reason. But um, if you're interested in global economics, and um, the stock market and how it all relates. Read The Big Short and The Boomerang. Uh, Boomerang, they're two books by Michael L. Lewis. But to get a true understanding of the 2008 global recession, how that happened, please read And the Weeks Suffer What They Must because that explains the history of global economics from the 1800s onwards in a really comprehensive but comprehensible way and the kind of conversations that um, Europe are having at the moment um, in terms of austerity measures and budget cuts and the impact that that's having globally I think is really um, prevalent and pressing because the sort of cuts that they're making they're making huge budget cuts and it's causing things um, widespread health issues. Austerity like, doesn't mm. work. Austerity measures never work. Mm. They don't work at all. And it has, it's really crippling all the health kind of structures that are in place. And people die. Yeah. People are literally That's the end dying. Result. The end of result it. of austerity measures is people die. Yeah. yeah. That, that's just, can't get much more simple than that, really. Oh, absolutely. And, oof. That gets me really riled up and angry on so many levels. But recommend um, if you're even a glimmer of interest in this, read some of these books because they really just pull the door open on a world that's often kept in glass towers away from people because it's too hard to comprehend. But often even the people working in the industries don't even know what their decisions mean and the historical context mm, of their decisions. Absolutely. So yeah. uh, I really always encourage people to read about economics, um, which is why I recommended three books about economics. <laughs> and my next book that I'm recommending is called, kind of ties into it a little bit because um, it's kind of the trouble of what really happened from 2008 is that a lot of stuff were put into algorithms that people don't actually understand how to use and a lot of things decisions were made using maths as being the gold standard and it kind of really ties into the conversation that we we're having earlier about maths is seen as objective when really it's humans who analyze the maths and we are mm. not objective we are not and the book that really covers this well, it's called Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. Oh, that's clever. And it is a fascinating book at the impact of how maths and algorithms are affecting society on a very mm. real level and how it's not often critiqued and held up to the same standards because often algorithms are created by private entities and corporations and they're hidden through um, proprietary law. Well, I mean, look at the algorithms that like Facebook and Twitter and all our social media platforms yeah. use. Yeah. Nobody gets to see them and they're trash. And they're also impacting um, who gets elected into office. Well, we've so, seen that from the 2016 US election. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of our entire democracy and i'm like using air quotes is being affected by algorithms mm. and maths and this book explains it in a really simple easy to understand way 
which is always great when it's kind of a confronting complex topic. So Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And it kind of ties me into another recommendation because <laughs> I found out about that book through a favorite podcast of mine called 99% Invisible with Roman Mars. And he does an episode with Kathy talking about um, how algorithms are applied to different facets of life from say the American education system and the justice system. And that podcast in particular goes into a lot of detail about that in a really entertaining, interesting way. And I just would highly recommend that podcast in general. And the premise of that podcast is 99% um, invisible with good design, 99% of it is invisible to the naked eye because that's what good design is. It's seamless, effortless, efficient, and generally aesthetically pleasing. And they do different topics um, each episode. What's the episode that um, Kathy O'Neill is on? Uh, I'll look up the number of that one um, and we'll put it in the, the show notes. notes. But their, their most recent episode was such a romp it was so fascinating into um episode 280 is called half measures and it looks at um why america is one of only a handful of countries in the world that doesn't use a metric system oh my god why <laughs> what's wrong with them it is some of the <laughs> best infuriating podcast material <sighs> okay I've i'm gonna go to and do you know what it comes back to religion like they've literally tried to bring the metric system in countless times, but then somebody realized, wait a second, an inch, and they somehow related an inch being to God and to the a foot is roughly the size of a foot and the length of an arm is roughly a yard and like the body is inherently mathematical because we're all designed in the eye of God. So to get rid of a foot, a yard and a gallon would be to defy God. So really we can't use the oh metric system. Oh, it's such <laughs> bizarre reasoning wow. that it's mind boggling and fascinating and just absolutely fantastic. And it's, just such a brilliant podcast. I was so going to listen to that yeah. episode. Because I'm sure a whole lot of religious orders are just really gunning for like, you know, no, you cannot bring in. <laughs> oh, God. You the pope, bring the, in pope this... is, the Pope is absolutely concerned about yards and inches and, and gallons. And yeah. At 100%. Fuck the metric system. That's right. <laughs> God was he. <laughs> I just imagine there's some like facet of like, there's some sort of like subculture in a, in um, the American religion where they are Flat like fuck the metric system, but like we still like my dad still talks in feet. Like how but many of us? Height though. Yeah, yeah, but no, but even sometimes when he's talking distances, like he, um, he doesn't use yards, but that's just mm, like you know, he's he's in, longs. He's, he's in his fifties, so that was you know still kind of around in Australia. So, oh, yeah. but he definitely uses the metric system as well. It's not like you have to, you know, once you move into metric, that's it. Nobody's allowed to say foot or inch anymore. Like, yeah, it's rude. <laughs> like, well, I mean, like with nipple, it's like the. The distance is three, three feet. feet. Yeah, so, you know it's, and you, we talk about height and feet just because it's easier Absolutely. than centimeters. Yeah, but yes, it's just with science and with you know like learning, it's, it's so much easier to use. The and metric. when the rest of the world is using the metric system, mm. it just seems like. Things could go awry. Well, yes, indeed. And this <laughs> goes into what goes awry, and it is hilarious wow, like the okay. amount of things where miscommunications happen because somebody's talking things they're talking in kilos and someone's talking in pounds hilarious okay i'm so, so good i'm so pumped to listen to and just episode. like everything Not every episode they do i literally i listened to about six in a row yesterday and i was like oh, i need to spread these facts immediately because there are so many interesting facts about the world and what's invisible and what we see and perceive and it's just really snappily put together. Mm. Yeah, not to mention whenever someone says 100 degrees, I'm sort of like, ah. and then I'm like, oh, I fuck know, Fahrenheit. But their temperatures <laughs> are so like, like, oh, yeah, it's really, it's really annoying. It makes zero sense. It may, does make zero sense. And my last recommendation is um, a fantastic, fantastic podcast um, brought out by the ABC and it's called Tell Me Straight. Um, it comes out every two or three days and it's, two or three days. Yeah. It's, they do it. They're full wow. timers. Yeah. They're, they're onto it. Neve and I are like every two or three days. Two or three days. <laughs> the dream. 
and uh, they basically answer relevant current questions and it's there it's an Australian podcast so they do a lot of Australian focused things but they also go globally internationally asking questions about current news events and mm-hmm. contemporary issues so they've done quite a bit on the plebiscite they've done a couple of episodes and they've broken it down and they get experts in to explain what the high court actually is what decisions they can make what do these decisions mean but they've also done episodes of what's happening in spain at the moment with the system of catalonia and catalan and the the vote that's happening there and why it's void and they even go into explaining what the gst is and why western australia wanted to concede the other week saying (laughs) fuck you australia we want to be our own country (laughs) yeah go for it guys they just they get experts in they always have a great chat. I learned so much within 20 minutes and it's actually a really kind of warm way of keeping up with the news. It's not sensationalized. It's not cold and clinical. It's kind of, it's a really fun news podcast that isn't, doesn't leave you feeling depressed or anxious. It's that's always a plus. Of, yeah. It's such a plus. It's a ray of sunshine. I literally love the two of them and I've been going Who's back. Who's hosting it? I wish I knew their names. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, I hear their voices and I'm like, flutter to my ears. Tell oh, me more. Nice. So um, I'll leave a link to that in the show notes so that people can then Check listen and find out their names and leave them little love letters. That's really questions. sweet. <laughs> okay. That's the best love letter. Just a series of questions of how does this world work? <laughs> and maybe a little bit of economics in there as well <laughs> and hot. some physics hot 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 <laughs> so sensible okay to me yes yeah yeah okay you need to run through them let's go okay i've got two i've only got two two books this month the first is um rubik by elizabeth tan she's a west australian author um collection of short stories but they're all kind of linked but you mm. kind of don't get that you sort of realize that as you read because characters kind of pop back up again and like things happen again. And, and so you just sort of like, as you're reading, you're slowly realizing that these stories are all linked, Mm. um, not in super explicit and clear ways, but sometimes it's really subtle, but, um, yeah, really, really wonderful. Um, just really great writing. And I think I devoured that book in like two days or something, just like smashed it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, fantastic, great collection of short stories by a wonderful Australian writer. So also it's got a beautiful cover. Yeah, I was actually like sitting on that comment. Gorgeous cover. It's such a great Mm. front cover. Mm. Um, and I know that's kind of a shallow thing to say, but you know, books have an inherent aesthetic. Oh um, yeah, definitely. I think, um, and book covers are, can really make or break, but, um, Mm. yeah, it's a beautiful front cover. Fantastic collection of short stories. She's um, really high on my must-read list now, so anything that comes out by Elizabeth Town, I'm going to be chasing it down. And she's got such a quirky style. Like, some of the yeah, stories really where it's just, like, really kind of bizarre sci-fi speculative fantasy Yeah, but not of. in a way not in a way that feels... Um, showy or well not in you know sometimes some sort of sci-fi stuff can be really like heavy going you know if you're not a sci-fi reader it can really be like beating you over the head with that Mm. sort of stuff she's rubik is not like that at all Mm. like it's there but it's kind of almost it's done in a literary way Mm. so it's really um yeah i thoroughly enjoyed thoroughly enjoyed it it. and i think it's going to be one of those um collections that i'll go back and read again oh nice because it feels like maybe you'll sort of like pick up more of the subtle sort of links and things with maybe a second read Mm. um yeah loved it and the next one is um a book that i probably maybe wouldn't normally have read but i went Mm. to um the Ballarat Book Bonanza on um, last weekend, which is a fantastic event that happens every year, which is a big book sale um, of ex-library books. So from um, the Ballarat Library, but also local school libraries as well. Um, It's basically heaven for me is Mm -hmm. what it is. Um, And so I I picked this book up. It's called Illuminae. Illuminae. Illuminae by Amy Kaufman and Jay (laughs) Kristoff. And... um, Oh my god, I loved it so much. Yeah, you cut me off actually. 
I was going to recommend this. <laughs> I had to scramble for another recommendation. I love this. This is like, it's so thick. It's mm. massive. It's like, oh, yeah, you don't get intimidated. It's like two and a half inches thick or something, but, but it's not. Um, what's oh. that in metric? Sorry. <laughs> um, but what's really interesting about it is it's all done um, in like reports. Yes. And Transcripts and, and yeah. There's, um, because oh, it's really gorgeous. Um, because they're in space for a lot of this um, novel, they uh, the authors like how it's set out is looks like they're in space and mm. like words are um, put in like used in a physical sense. Ugh, I can't like they've when you get it around the some page. some of the pages. They're sort of like you know the instead of having a page of text. You've got like a black page, which is space, yeah. and then you've got these words that sort of like loop across the page yeah. in like um, shapes and, and different ways. And yeah, yeah, like it's like um, transcript of conversation, transcripts of yeah. um, conversation, like text space conversations, you know, like messaging service conversations. And oh, yeah, definitely. And what I messaging service conversations in books can get really fucking annoying. Um, if there's too many, if there are too many but this, of them, this was great. But, yeah, but there was so much variation, variation that you've just found yourself getting really pulled in. To I the narrative. loved it. I actually oh, had great. a couple of um, one a.m., two a.m. reading sessions reading Living this party. because I just wanted to keep reading. I was just like so invested in this story and in these mm. characters, um, Katie and and Ezra. Yeah. Um, who are um, who are like seventeen year old couple and they're living on this um, planet. I can't remember what the name of the planet is called. Okay. Anyway, it's like an illegal mining operation, and then this big corporation decides that they're going to attack them, and they get rescued onto these ships. But it's like they sh- one of the ships is like really bad. They're on two separate ships, and one of the ships is like really badly damaged, and they're like racing through space trying to get away from the bad guy, and the bad guy's following them, and the computer on the big ship is like losing its mind and doing lots of really bad things and it's just um yeah it's <laughs> that probably sounds terrible what it i just said sounds like firefly. Um, but it's it's great it's so great and it's also you know what's really interesting is that it could be so flat but like how it's every single um bit of information builds into this suspenseful mm-hmm. like climax and you can it's actually almost awesome because you can sort of almost see like the narrative construct itself or it's like a deconstructed, if you get what I mean, like, because you can, as you're reading it, you can tell, you know why everything you, so you can tell why every single bit of this is in this spot. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, the, the whole structure of the book is like this, this group is preparing this report yeah, for biotech, yeah, which yeah. is the bad company. And then the report is, you know, like a series of bits and pieces, you know, that they've sort of put together, which, um, you know, when you think about it is, mm. is perhaps not the best basis for a narrative, but it's so well done and yeah. it's, it's constructed so fantastically that there are, it doesn't feel like there's any gaps or any holes. It just, yeah, I bloody loved it. And I'm, there's two more books, I think, in the series. Yeah. I, and I'm like, they're so high on my must read list now. Like, I yeah, just, the next need one to get is them. already out. I don't think the third one is yet to be released. Okay. I hope they, I memory. hope this is not like going to be a George R.R. R. Martin thing where it takes 15 years for the third one to come out because uh, I may not survive. Well, I mean, I'm a little wary because. I mean, technically it's YA and it's a YA trilogy and that's always a very precarious... <laughs> that's such a precarious thing. Well, look, I mean, I, I almost feel like this could this could be a stand... Like, yeah, it's part of a trilogy, but you could read it as, as a standalone. Oh, yeah, definitely. I could be st- yeah, very satisfied as a standalone. And I feel like that's of rare quality as well. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, anyway, top marks for me from that one and I'm really glad I picked it up at the Book Bonanza. And I'm really glad that it's on my bookshelf. Mm. And there are Melbourne-based writers. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Jay is the first, um, what is it, the end end of October? Jay is the first um, male writer that I've read this year. Hey. I haven't read anything by um, a male writer. And it was a (laughs) co-author collaboration. Didn't even get, not even by himself. And also, (laughs) hashtag love 
love as well. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it's all it's all good. It is all good. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to Literary Cannonball. We hope you'll tune in again next month when we'll be talking about the Pillow Book by, and I'm I know I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. Say Say Shonagan. This is from this book was published in the year one thousand and two. I think that's correct. So yep. pretty pumped, excited to read a book that's you know a thousand years old. Yeah. Plus, why Plus. not? Why not? You know. Like, why stick to a couple of hundred? Go hard or go home. Absolutely. Mm. I like your style name. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, if you want to continue the chat or you just want to be digital friends, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and we talk about books and we put up articles and there's a lot of great stuff happening on Twitter or on Instagram. Oh, the Twitter is at Lit Cannonball. All one word. And on Instagram, we are at Literary Cannonball. And you can find us on Facebook at Literary Cannonball. And we do a lot of art, a lot of conversations, a lot of pictures, occasional gifts, boomerangs. Lots lots of fun stuff. And if you want to tell us something that's a little bit more than 140 characters, send us an email or a love letter, whatever, you know, with some (laughs) economic stuff in there. Do that. We love getting emails. And... Our email address is literarycannonball at gmail.com. And make sure to check out our website, literarycannonball.com, where you'll find a full wrap of the show notes and a full list and links to our recommendations. That's literarycannonball.com. And don't forget to subscribe at whatever podcast app you are using. Tell your friends all about Literary Cannonball and if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'll be forever grateful. Maybe we'll send you a love letter back. (laughs) With economics. (laughs) And some physics. (laughs) And some book recommendations. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Actually, I've got a pile here that I didn't get into. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a deal. If you leave us a review on iTunes... Send us a message, tell us that you have, and we will send you back a love letter with some physics and some book recommendations, and it'll be great fun. Yeah, that matters. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, and there'll be some puns. There'll definitely be some puns. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Okay. Wait a second. Let me get my books. No. That's like... <laughs> Maria. Maria, Maria, Maria. Don't use that. (laughs) (laughs) I think you have to use that.